This was the last thing anyone needed. AstraZeneca essentially said to the EU, sorry guys, Europe invested billions and now the companies must deliver. This is an incredibly hostile and aggressive act by the European Union bloc. What went wrong and why? A warning from the World Health Organization. We will not end the pandemic anywhere until we end it everywhere. And could last week's high drama over vaccine supplies have a lasting political impact? When things become scarce, the atmosphere tends to turn unpleasant. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, how Brussels bungled the vaccine. Today's story involves supply chains, contractual disputes, supranational entities and an awful lot of politics. But in the end, it's a big story that has a very real impact on each of our small lives. I'm 66, I live in London, and I'm due to get my first dose of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine on Friday, as this episode comes out. Meanwhile, 200 miles away in Paris, sits my colleague, Sunday Times Europe editor, Peter Conradi. Hi, Peter. Hello, David. How are you? Peter, the scene that I'm thinking of is Emily in Paris, where she flings open the window onto the balcony and onto the boulevard and looks out. Is that the vista you see when you open your window? That is where the resemblance between Emily and myself ends, I think. Peter is 60, and he's been checking the French online vaccine calculator most days. And despite assurances from President Macron that everyone will be offered the vaccine this summer... The calculator is saying Peter will get it sometime between November the 6th this year and June the 15th next year. You are joking. <laughs> no, I, I'm not. I mean, it's, I, I love the precision of it, November the 6th. It reminds me of an old joke in the Soviet Union where I used to work when people were arranging the delivery of goods and it was several months ahead and they were saying, is it going to be the morning or the afternoon? And why do you ask that? Well, because we've got the washing machine coming in the afternoon. It's that, it's that, kind, <laughs> of, it's that kind of madness. But France has only vaccinated something like 2.8% of the population so far. It's going very slowly. And this Calculator also pointed out that at the current rate, it would take them 3.2 years to do 56% of the population. And I think 56% of the population is the percentage that they expect would actually want to be vaccinated. Is there any element of expectation management about this, which is that actually they expect to get a lot more supply sometime relatively soon, and then they'll be able to give you the great news that actually it's going to be in the summer? To be honest, I don't think so, because I remember checking this calculator a few weeks ago before there was any talk of supply problems. In fact, when I looked then, it gave me the impression that I was going to get my jab sometime in July. <laughs> so things, you know, things have gone backwards. I'm afraid that is actually just the grim reality. It's going to be rather weird, isn't it, if large numbers of Britons have been vaccinated by the time you get to half the French. I mean, that's not going to go down very well. No, it's not. And I think in a sense, it's, it's not just a French problem. I mean, if one looks at the statistics across the EU, the EU has vaccinated 12 million, 13 million or so people, which is a tiny fraction of the population. 
compared to Britain. The French have done one-sixth of the number of people that we've done in Britain, despite having the same population. The winners within Europe are the Irish. They've done 4.1%. And the Danes, who've done 4.1%. So different picture across Europe, but overall a pretty dismal one. OK, so let's, let's get into try and find out why that's been. In the first instance, how much of this is down to the fact that they actually decided to agree that the vaccines were appropriate for use, and there's still quite a few they haven't, a significant amount later than Britain did? That played a very, very big part in it. The EU moved much more slowly than Britain did. It put less money in, or proportionately less money in than Britain did up front. And it just didn't negotiate as well and as quickly as Britain did. And, you know, this is important because a decision was taken quite early on in the process by the EU countries that they would all negotiate collectively, i.e. the European Commission would do the negotiation on their behalf. Now, this was quite a controversial decision, and it was, it was to some extent a politically driven decision. I mean, there is a logic that you have a block of countries of something like 447 million people between them. There's a logic that they should all negotiate as one. They wouldn't be competing against one another. They would probably get a better deal on, on price. So that was the kind of logic behind it. But there was also another kind of deeply political logic, because when we had the first wave of the virus, there was a very much sense in which the commission was doing nothing. It was, it was each country for itself. Countries were throwing up barriers against one another. They were squabbling over shipments of personal protective equipment and so on. Lots of complaints then. What is the European Union doing? Why isn't it coordinating everything? And so there was this desire in Europe, in Brussels, to get involved and to do the negotiating with the drugs companies. Now, in one way, that would seem, as you said, make a lot of sense, because if you imagine all these countries bidding against each other, uh, then that could have been quite difficult. And I do recall, going back to the refugee crisis of 2015, that one of the huge accusations levelled at the EU was that it had no central policy for dealing with the refugees. Do you think maybe something like that was partly in their minds when they said, no, we'd better do it? Yes, I mean, that was, that was another big test for Europe, the refugee crisis. There it was, I suppose, slightly different in that it was much more political issue. When it came to vaccines you know, everybody wanted to have one. There was nothing political about it in that sense. All you had, though, was a slight difference of opinion. Some of them, for example, were a little bit more conservative. They didn't trust the new vaccines based on new techniques of the, of the sort that we have with the Pfizer one, rather than the more traditional AstraZeneca vaccine. Also, it was a question of cost. The Germans, for example, wealthy country, were prepared to spend more on vaccines than the smaller Eastern European countries. So, you know, those kind of considerations. But there was a desire, I think, that this should all be centralised and it would somehow be more efficient and it would work better. One of the things that we've learned is that British vaccination strategy was partially based on Matt Hancock seeing the film Contagion. You were initially told to buy 30 million AstraZeneca jabs. You decided to go for 100 million. I read in one newspaper today, this is because you're a fan of the movie Contagion. I wouldn't say that that film was my primary source of advice on this. What did Contagion teach you? Well, it, it, in, the, in the film, 
it shows that the moment of highest stress around the vaccine programme is when there is a huge row about the order of priority. So he went out and just spent an awful lot of money on an awful lot of different sorts of vaccine. Uh, I suppose I'm rather wondering what would have happened if the EU countries had done the same thing? If they, they had done, then we would have just had a lot more production capacity for vaccines in the first place, because a lot of this was not only countries saying, right, I want X million doses of your vaccine when you produce it. It was countries, in a sense, getting out their checkbooks and financing that production. And so had the EU actually been prepared to spend more and had it started to negotiate earlier, then we probably wouldn't have had the same shortfall in production that we have at the moment because further plants would have been built. It's in six months, seven months, you can actually do quite a lot. Uh, which seems an appropriate moment to introduce the woman who we've come to know a little bit more about, but who, to British listeners, was largely unknown before this began, and that's Ursula von der Leyen. Tell me a bit about her. Yes, so Ursula von der Leyen, veteran German politician, she became the European Commission president in December 2019, having most recently been the defence minister in Germany. I feel so honoured and I'm overwhelmed and I thank you for the trust you placed in me. The trust you placed in me is confidence you placed in Europe. You know, she is in a sense the perfect choice by a happy coincidence. She qualified as a doctor specialising in public health before she went into politics and she even spent a period teaching in the Department of Epidemiology at Hanover Medical School. So in a sense, who better to have in charge of the European response than someone like that, who's a politician and she knows what she's talking about. It's like merging Boris Johnson with Chris Whitty, horrible thought, (laughs) but I mean, both both in in, in, in one sort of rather better groomed package. Okay, and so there she is, and she she looks like she's got all the qualifications. And then how is she regarded back when the pandemic started? One should bear in mind that she took over from uh, Juncker, of whom it was charitably said he's best in the mornings. So I think (laughs) when she came in, people were certainly prepared to cut her a lot of slack. You know, she seemed to get off to quite a good start. No member state can handle this crisis on their own. But during the first few months of COVID, her reputation did suffer. European unity was nowhere to be seen amid allegations of countries hoarding protective medical equipment and not sharing it with Italy and Spain. The prevailing view is that the pandemic has weakened arguments for the EU. Because there was the feeling that the European Commission wasn't really getting a grip, wasn't really leading. But then, you know, she kind of recovered from that and towards the end of the year, her star seemed to be again in the ascendant. Today we took the decision to make available for European citizens the first COVID-19 vaccine. This is a true European success story. So thank you so much. So, as recently as the autumn, she looks to have taken control of the pandemic situation with regard to the oncoming vaccine. And that's not looking so bad, despite the fact that we know that their regulators are going to be slower, because that's obvious right the way from the the middle of uh, the autumn. And then, two weeks ago, it all seems to go completely pear-shaped. 
We're getting word of major production problems at AstraZeneca and its key manufacturing facility in Europe. The European Union has made it clear it's furious. Their allocation of the vaccine for the first quarter of the year has been cut by 60%. The World Health Organization is warning against what it calls vaccine nationalism. Europe invested billions and now the companies must deliver. Yeah, I mean, that was really an extraordinary development. It was on the Friday that AstraZeneca essentially said to the EU, sorry, guys, you were meant to be getting 80 million doses by the end of March, and uh, it's just going to be it's going to be 31 million instead. Sorry about that. They hadn't actually been deploying it yet, because bizarrely, they hadn't authorised it yet. And there was quite a long delay for them to actually authorise the AstraZeneca vaccine, which they only did last Friday, i.e. one week later. That being said, the AstraZeneca vaccine was part of their strategy. But, you know, that started to concentrate minds in the European Commission. And there was a sort of a degree of suspicion that AstraZeneca had been somehow giving preferential treatment to Britain. Britain is, is, is supplied largely from AstraZeneca's plants within the UK, but the Commission was suspicious that perhaps some supplies from continental Europe had been diverted to Britain. So suspicious, in fact, that the Belgian police raided the Belgian plant of AstraZeneca, and they hauled the chief of AstraZeneca virtually to Brussels to get him to explain himself. What we're trying to do collectively here has never been done in the history of the world. So it's a huge undertaking. And in, in, in the course of, of that, a lot of focus was put on the contract which the Commission had signed with AstraZeneca. Because essentially the Commission's position was, if there is a problem with the supply of vaccines in Belgium, then essentially you have got to send us vaccines that you otherwise would have sent to Britain i.e. from the British plants. And AstraZeneca's response was, well, no, we, we, we can't do that because we've got a contract with Britain. And the European Commission said, well, you are also contracted to supply us with a certain amount of vaccines. So then it began to centre on what exactly was in the contract, what the wording of the contract was. And it transpired that AstraZeneca had only agreed to, quotes, use best efforts you know, which led obviously to lawyers on both sides to argue about what exactly best efforts mean. Uh, but certainly the suspicion was by the end of it that the EU doesn't have a watertight legal case against AstraZeneca. But, but devil's advocate for a moment, because by and large we haven't been asking this question in Britain. How could it be that AstraZeneca are supplying what they were contracted to in Britain, but are not supplying what they're contracted to in Europe, but they are still said to be using their best efforts. Wouldn't best efforts mean to say, they say to both sides, well, we're going to have to split the difference a little bit here? I mean, this is in a sense one for the lawyers rather than for <laughs> us, I think, or one for the moral philosophers. AstraZeneca has essentially said, no, no, these are two separate contracts. We're supplying from separate plants and we're going to honour both of them as best as we can. OK, so the, the upshot of it is, in any case, and also the national champion didn't work in France. That was another problem. 
Let's go back to what GSK and Sanofi announced this morning. Uh, I'm quoting the communique here this morning. It said the results of the study are not as we hoped. The French were particularly keen on a vaccine that Sanofi were developing, a French company. Uh, it turns out to be, it doesn't do any harm, but it doesn't apparently really do much good either. And so there is the expectation that they will find a way of dealing with that problem, but that's not going to be for many months now. So that could be the one that I get, according to the uh, timetable I've been given. Okay, so all this happens. They're a bit slow off the blocks. They've picked some vaccines that haven't turned out for them. Their contract with AstraZeneca doesn't appear to be quite as good as they thought it was. The upshot is they're getting a lot less of the vaccine than they hoped. And it means that somebody like you is going to be vaccinated long after somebody like me, because you're in Paris and I'm in London. Despite all that, how did that come to be a row involving the EU and the UK? Because when things become scarce, the atmosphere tends to turn unpleasant. I mean, in this case, people are beginning to realise across Europe that their vaccination programme is going slowly compared to the British programme. Now, Britain is a country similar size to France, similar size to Italy, a bit smaller than Germany, until very recently it was part of the European Union as well. Furthermore, its prime minister is a figure who has been widely derided in the European press as being, frankly, a bit of a joke and so on. And then obviously there's a search for scapegoats and a lot of European leaders and a lot of people in Europe are now looking towards Ursula von der Leyen and wondering to what extent it is her fault that everything is going so slowly. Some of the most ferocious criticism is actually coming from her native Germany. There was an absolutely savage article which I read in Der Spiegel, which was looking back at her entire career, saying, essentially, this is a woman who has messed up every job she's ever held in politics. Before anyone has discovered what a mess she's made of it, she's moved on to the next job and so on and so on. But this is her last job. There's nowhere else for her to move. What's she going to do? <laughs> you know, the, just the, the, the sheer ferocity of it. I almost fell off my chair when I read it. I thought, yeah, they really do hate her. So therefore, what, what was the response of the European Union? Well, first response was to try and persuade AstraZeneca to divert vaccine from Britain to Europe. When that didn't succeed, the next response was to say, right, well, there is vaccine which is produced in Europe by Pfizer, for example. So we, the European Union, will actually put controls on the export of vaccine from Europe. The EU's chief Brexit negotiator wants Brussels to step back from a deepening row with Britain over the shortage of vaccines in Europe. Michel Barnier has made the comments to the Times. Now, in the end, they stepped back from doing that, but there was still the sort of the, the, the threat of that. Why did they step back from doing that? I think there was a, a realisation towards the end of last week that things were getting a little bit out of hand. And I mean, they, they got even more out of hand on Friday evening. The European Union has blindsided the UK. As people waited for their vaccinations in Londonderry this morning, less than six miles away, the Irish border was about to become the centre of an astonishing escalation. And that means a ban on vaccines moving freely between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. We are not protecting ourselves 
uh, against any specific country and we're not in competition or in a race against any country. The only race we're in is against this virus. They were effectively putting a hard border through the middle of the island of Ireland, a vaccine border. I, I don't think, I mean, they certainly cannot have grasped the political consequences. It's been described as, as the nuclear option. And, you know, then all hell broke loose. Literally, all hell did break loose. This is an incredibly hostile and aggressive act by the European Union bloc. They are trying to stop the supply of a vaccine designed to save lives into the United Kingdom. For years, we were told after the European Union referendum vote that there couldn't be a hard border on the island of Ireland. Is your understanding, looking back on that now, that this was something that the senior people at the Commission just simply hadn't spotted? Because we now know that they didn't even consult the Irish government. And it is hard to believe that even the most dense senior Eurocrat would not have realised that you needed to talk to them about it. I don't think anyone would have thought this through. This was not a deliberate attempt by Ursula von der Leyen to subvert the Irish peace process. I mean, she's already got enough problems on her plate without creating yet another one. I think this was just a clear error. And I think it reveals a lot about the European Commission, I think. It is halfway between a bureaucracy and a government. It's, it's neither one thing nor the other. And I think in a case like this, it behaves in a way that no government would behave. In other words, if it had been government, somebody would have spotted this and said, nope, you're not doing that. Exactly. It had all been reversed in about, in about an hour. There is an alliterative term for this, Peter, the second part of which is show. <laughs> After the break, how the vaccine row could have a lasting impact on politics across the continent and why some European leaders are casting doubt on one vaccine in particular. If you want to read more of what Peter writes and really get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times, then subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. 
Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peter, is your impression that this has been a very unfortunate incident and combination of circumstances, but that for one reason or another, we're going to get over it and it won't recur in this way? I mean, it's, it's notable, I think, that the British government has not been crowing about its success. They've been deliberately downplaying it. I think the Europeans don't want to stir things up further. Both sides have, have been to the brink. They've looked over the edge of the abyss and they've stepped back. And I think they're going to calm things down. Let's talk about one other really strange aspect of all this discussion, which is at the same time as this has been going on, there has been significant doubt cast in Europe about the AstraZeneca vaccine. And far from it just being one or two people in Europe who've been saying it, actually, this is quite a widespread belief. Can you take us through where it comes from, this belief that the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine is somehow not effective in the over 65s and how it's played out? Early last week, um, Handelsblatt, which is a serious German newspaper, a little bit like the German Financial Times, produced a report suggesting that the AstraZeneca vaccine was only 8% effective in people over the age of 65. Now, this report provoked quite bemused reactions, I suppose, because the initial reaction was, well, look, they're misreading the study, they've they've looked at it, and it's, it's true that the AstraZeneca vaccine was tested on a very small number of people over the age of 65. And and as far as I understand it, AstraZeneca's explanation for that is quite simply that those people are at risk. And from an ethical point of view, they didn't particularly want to subject over 65s in in, in the same way as uh, they would younger people. So the initial reaction to this German newspaper report was that they'd somehow got their the figures mixed up. But then curiously, by the end of last week, we had the German vaccine authorization body, which said that it too shared concerns about AstraZeneca vaccines effectiveness in the over 65s, and that therefore, in Germany, it was not going to be used on the over 65s. The same day, you had the European medical agency, it didn't make that distinction. And it said, no, the AstraZeneca vaccine is valid for everyone. But where the Germans led, others followed. And then Macron, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, himself piled in. And he started essentially to say he was doubtful about the vaccine. Quite an odd intervention. So we're in an odd situation where the European countries have been fighting with AstraZeneca, with Britain. They've been endangering, to some extent, the peace process in Ireland, all essentially to get more stocks of a vaccine, which they're then publicly casting doubts about. 
Yes, it's very difficult to understand. Of course, speaking as somebody of the age that I am who's getting the AstraZeneca vaccine, (laughs) um, uh, it it becomes quite an interesting discussion because you're bound to say to yourself for a moment, hmm, actually, I'm pretty reassured by by, by what's been said so far, but this European stuff is slightly unnerving. And then I think, well, given that they're going to get large quantities of the AstraZeneca vaccine at some point during the course of this year, how are they then going to turn around and tell their people, actually, you know what I was saying about, well, actually, we were wrong. It's great. Especially in a country like France, which has, I gather, and you'll be aware of this, quite a lot of what they call vaccine hesitancy. It it does indeed. I mean, some, some cynics have said that the French government has deliberately slowed everything down and has deliberately created all these problems because knowing how bloody-minded the French are, if the French are told they can't have it, then um, huge numbers of them are actually going to want to have it after all. And so this is, this is actually a very Machiavellian tactic by the ultra-Machiavellian Emmanuel Macron. I'm not sure if I, if I buy that one particularly. I mean, my hope, of course, as a 60-year-old, is that if the AstraZeneca vaccine is unsuitable for the over-65s, who will they be injecting it into? Ha! The over-60s. And so rather than having to wait until November the 6th, I might get it perhaps on September the 15th or something. I mean, that raises an interesting question, really, about how life might diverge between where I am and where you are in the coming months. Yeah, I think it does. And so, you know, if one looks four, five, six months hence, one might be looking at two very different situations, one in Britain and and one in the rest of Europe. Uh, And one final thought, Peter, which is, what such a divergence would do for politics in Europe. This is, I think, is going to be very interesting in the next few weeks and months. There's going to be a political price to pay for that. France is, I think, an interesting example. Emmanuel Macron is standing for re-election in the spring of next year. His record on handling the virus will be really under scrutiny, particularly from Marine Le Pen. For now, the government offers no way out, no hope, especially since the vaccination campaign is a terrible fiasco. We've also got elections in Germany before that, this September. And more immediately, we've got elections in, in Holland in March in the Netherlands. Peter, do you think you and I will be able to meet up in the autumn in a little bistro in Paris and I can buy you a glass of wine? (laughs) I very much hope to, and I should put it in my calendar. Uh, I've got a bit of time on the afternoon of November the 6th, I think, (laughs) so I'm probably having my jab in the morning. I'm on. Thanks, Peter. Nice to meet you, David. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Sunday Times Europe editor, Peter Conradi. You can keep up with all Peter's reporting and analysis at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was James Shield, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. And look, if you have a story you think we should be covering, maybe an idea for a future episode, or even just thoughts on what you've heard, you can send us an email by writing to Stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk. Have a good weekend. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.